I'm LZ Granderson, and this is Life Out Loud. I lost my mentor and friend Tony from complications to AIDS when I was a sophomore in college. We met when I was in high school. We were both members of the Detroit Windsor Dance Academy. Tony, who was about 10 years older, was also a teacher there. He was so talented, always smiling, always supportive. Tony was as happy as anyone when I got into college on a dance scholarship. I never asked him if he was gay, and he never told me. Not until the last day I saw him alive. I never told him I thought I might be gay, but I didn't need to. I know that Tony took me under his wing for a reason. That phone call is never easy, you know. You can prepare your heart as best you can, but when that call comes telling you that you've lost a loved one to the virus, you're not ready. Trust me, I got more than one of those calls. Like Tony, all of them were black men. And like Tony, none of them talked about their sexuality or status until the end. Silence helped to kill us then. Silence contributes to our deaths now. In 2018, black men had the highest number of new HIV cases. According to the CDC, for every 100 black people living with HIV, 37 did not receive care and 49 were not virally suppressed. Disturbing numbers, according to Dr. Anthony Fauci, who first began tracking HIV data in 1981. In 1984, he became director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. Obviously, after seeing how quickly the world developed a coronavirus vaccine, one couldn't help but wonder why hasn't an AIDS vaccine been developed in 40 years? We talk about that, along with his critique of the Reagan administration and his love-hate relationship with ACT UP founder and Gay Men's Health Crisis co-founder, Larry Kramer. By the way, part two of this episode, we speak with Dr. Rachel Levine, the Biden administration's Assistant Secretary of Health and the first openly transgender federal official to be confirmed by the U.S. Senate. But first, our wide-ranging chat with Dr. Fauci. Now, Dr. Fauci, you were born in New York on Christmas Eve in 1940, and obviously the city was different back then. But I, I'm curious as to what do you recall life being like for the LGBTQ community when you were growing up? And who was the first queer person that you encountered? Well, I think life was really very difficult for the LGBTQ community when I was growing up because, you know, uh, I, as you said, I was born in Christmas Eve of 1940. And there was no tolerance at all for, for gay people back then. And most of the time they were very much in the closet. And the only, I think, uh, window into the life of a gay person back then was something that was a distortion, you know, of what being gay is, namely people who are, who are in the closet, who are um, essentially uh, portrayed as people who are evil people. I mean, it was a complete distortion of, of what the reality of being gay is. Uh, and that was throughout many years of my, of my childhood. And who was the first queer person that you encountered or the first time you realized there was something other than, you know, being straight or being cisgendered? Well, it was unpleasant experience. I mean, and that's the reason why I think there was such such un, unjustifiable stigma against gay people, because the first encounter I had was, um, you know, on the New York City subway going to high school when... You know, you're standing up in a crowded thing and all of a sudden somebody grabs you 
your butt or something like that. But the first realistic encounter that I had with a with a with a, a person who was clearly gay, I believe, was in uh, uh, medical school, I guess. Now, what was that like? Well, I mean, I was very understanding about it. It wasn't strange at all. I mean, I, I by the time I got to medical school, it was very clear because I was training to be a physician. So, you know a lot about life and a lot about what's going on with people. <laughs> so, but it was a very long time until I actually had uh, a um, an interaction, a reasonable interaction with somebody. Uh, and then after that, it was like I got a lot of gay friends. I mean, I have you know a lot of gay friends now. Uh, that I've worked with that have become very close to me and my family. Uh, Larry Kramer, who's, you know, obviously a famous LGBTQ rights um, advocate and AIDS activist, uh, has passed away a little bit over a year now um, with pneumonia, from pneumonia. You two were close, but your relationship didn't start off that way. In fact, uh, he wrote a letter, an open letter addressed to you back in 1988, in which he called you a murderer and an idiot. How did you two go from being, you know, sort of enemies to buddies? <laughs> well, well, get it straight. It wasn't a murderer and an idiot. It was a murderer and an incompetent idiot. <laughs> ah, incompetent idiot. Yes, yes. Thank you for the clarification. Right. You can't do an experimental AIDS drug treatment without Dr. Fauci. He is uh, the man who has given the money to this hospital. He is, he is God in AIDS research. And he's just been inhumane, I guess, is the only thing I can say. I don't think he means it intentionally, but I think he is caught up in such red tape and such bureaucracy, and he is in way over his head that he doesn't know what to do either. Larry, you know, as you probably know through the history, which has been written by many people, we had a complicated relationship that started off by his trying to gain my attention. And he was, you know, Larry was a very confrontative, theatrical, iconoclastic Person. Not one single person of importance at the White House or in HHS has cared enough to call Fauci and ask him, how's it going? What do you need? What can we do to help? You know, he was very passionate about the fact that he felt the government, which he thought I represented because I was a, you know, a person working at the NIH who was very open about needing to do more in HIV and AIDS. But to him, that didn't matter. I was a government employee, so therefore I was part of the evil empire. AIDS is a mess. There's still no one in charge. The president still doesn't care. The science still isn't being done. We don't have trust or faith in our doctors. We certainly don't have any trust or faith in the National Institutes of Health or the Food and Drug Administration. That's why we're taking, trying, insisting on taking these matters in our own hand. We have a better record of treating ourselves than doctors do. So he confronted me, but as it became clear to him and to me that in different ways we both had the same goal, that we felt more needed to be done. We needed to get the you know, gay men mostly involved in the uh, planning and the execution of clinical trials of the relaxation of certain of the regulatory constraints about getting drugs to people who needed them quickly. And then once we started talking about how we felt about things, it became clear that we were very much uh, simpatico with each other. And over several years, we went from 
what appear to be adversaries to associates and colleagues and friends and then very, very good friends. And, uh, you know, by the time Larry passed away, we had been really, really quite close for, for a considerable period of time. But he's a very complicated figure because even after we became really close to the point where we, we, we kind of loved each other in, in so many respects, even then, if he thought something was going on that he didn't think I was handling properly, he would publicly trash me. <laughs> so the fact that we were good friends, <laughs> it didn't matter to him. I mean, and, and he did He wouldn't it. text you and say, hey, I didn't like that? Uh, no, no. I mean, uh, there's a, you know, an example that I tell often that is so characteristic and uh, uh, emblematic of, of our relationship years and years into the relationship when we were very close uh, we were asked to be on a on a television program i was in washington and, and and larry of course was in new york and we were talking in the middle of the conversation he started just taking me apart and tell oh, you're not doing anything right you know you're doing this you're doing that and screaming and yelling etc cetera, etc cetera, as if we were lifelong enemies and and I, I I was saying, well, okay, that's just Larry. He some, something upset him. And then when I got home, I just got in the car and drove home. It was about fifty ten minutes from my house was the studio in D.C. I walk into my house, and the phone rings, and it's Larry. And he says, "Hey, Tony, that was a great interview. Don't you think it really went very well?" <laughs> and, and, and I said, "Larry." You just trashed me in front of about 5 million people. <laughs> Why do you think it went well? He says, oh, oh, I was just trying to make a point. Don't worry about it. <laughs> He's one of several doctors who's literally saved my life. And uh, you, it's hard to be critical of that. And he does allow me a friendship that allows me access to yell at him and say, why aren't you saying such and such, and why aren't you doing such and such? So that was Larry. He was just a wonderful person to get to know. What was he right about when you think back on those days, especially early on when you were, you know, adversarial? Looking back, what was he right about, either about you or the way the government was handling the AIDS crisis? Well, I think the thing he was right about, that there was not enough attention paid to the needs of people who were living with HIV and at risk for HIV. There was, uh, you know, President Reagan early on, uh, he did not use the bully pulpit of the presidency as effectively as he could have. In fact, he didn't use it hardly at all to call attention to the needs of persons living with or at risk for HIV. So I would take it a step further, uh, doctor, not to interrupt you, yeah, but it, yeah. it felt as if not only did he not use the pulpit to turn attention towards the people who were suffering, but there were voices from his administration that seemed like they were making it a joke. A lot of the AIDS is now an epidemic in 600, over 600 cases. Over a third of them are not. It's known as gay plague. <laughs> yeah, well, it was. There was a now infamous clip of a conversation, which was really, really very disconcerting, talking about people with HIV, and they were seemed like they were joking about it, which was really terrible. Do you? You didn't answer my question. 
How do you know? But Larry, what he did, I think that was important. Besides using his very theatrical ways of gaining attention, he surrounded himself with a younger group of what he called acolytes that were young gay men who gathered around him as the sort of the godfather of activism. And these were well-informed, studious uh, young gay men who were learning a lot about the disease, about the therapies, about clinical trials. So even though that's not any details that Larry got involved with, he was mostly a firebrand that shook the cages and, and, and caused a lot of turmoil to get people's attention. When he started ACT UP uh, in New York, uh, the young gay men mostly, there were some women in ACT UP, but mostly young gay men who he recruited into that organization really went a long way to interacting in a, in a very meaningful, positive way with the clinical trial people, with the scientists, certainly with myself, because I developed a very strong relationship with several members of ACT UP back then, and they are still close to me even to today. I mean, literally, as we go through the COVID-19 pandemic, I still have close relationships with several of the people who back then were just young gay acolytes and students of Larry Kramer. And for those listeners who aren't familiar with ACT UP, uh, it was an organization that, that Larry started to be more confrontational during the height of the AIDS crisis. And you can actually check out a documentary uh, called ACT UP. Um, I believe it was released back in 2012. I, I don't remember, though. Are you in that documentary much? Which one? The uh, How to Survive a Plague? How to Survive a Plague. Yes, sir. Yeah, I'm, I'm all over that. <laughs> there is a feeling among members of any of, of a number of professions or just the general population that Patients with AIDS, many of whom are homosexual, are a little bit different. I think that that has led to a little bit of a complacency about the approach towards this disease. How close are we to having an HIV vaccine or cure? Well, you know, it's very difficult to predict. It's, you know, I get asked that question all the, all the time. And, and the, the more favorite question is, you know, it took you less than a year to develop a safe and effective vaccine for COVID-19. You've been trying to develop a vaccine for HIV for, you know, over 35 or more years, 36 years, 37 years. And the reason is, is not for lack of trying. It's that the body just does not like to make an adequate immune response against HIV. It just doesn't. And that's one of the perplexing aspects of HIV. Uh, it integrates itself into the genome of the cells so quickly becomes very difficult to rid the body of it. And one of the tenets of vaccinology is that in order to get a successful vaccine, you've got to have a disease in which the body actually makes a good immune response. So when you get diseases like measles, like polio, like smallpox, even though those are diseases that cause a considerable degree of morbidity and mortality, At the end of the day, most people recover from those diseases because the immune system is capable of suppressing and ultimately ridding the body 
of whatever pathogen you're dealing with, be it smallpox or measles or polio. And then the body then has an immune response that stays with you, that protects you against infection from the same pathogen. So the body has given you a proof of, proof of concept that it is capable of making a good immune response. And that's the reason why we have successful vaccines against measles, against smallpox, against polio, and now against COVID-19. That's just not the case with HIV, because for reasons that are still a bit perplexing, the body does not make a good response against HIV. So in order to get a vaccine, which I think, and I'm always cautiously optimistic that we will ultimately get a vaccine for HIV, we've got to do better than natural infection. When last I checked, Black people made up 42% of the country's new HIV cases in 2018 alone. Right. And that Black men are less likely to get care. Black women are about 14 times more likely to be diagnosed with HIV than their white female counterparts. So my question to you is, when you hear those numbers, does it feel like it's a crisis situation for you, for the Black community when it comes to HIV? I've been talking about that for a very long time. In fact, I talk about the extraordinary disparities in health with not only HIV, but also with COVID-19. No, you're absolutely right. The numbers are very, very disturbing. You know, 13% of the population is African-American and 44% of the new infections are among African-Americans. And of those, 65% are among men who have sex with men who are African-American. And of those, 75% are young African-American men who have sex with men. So there's a considerable disparity there. And, you know, the, the, the reasons for that are, are multifaceted, really. It has a lot to do, I think, with the stigma that's still associated with HIV and with being gay among African-Americans. Because if you look at the charts of the, of the country and the counties where you, where you see a considerable amount of residual infection even today, after all of the things we have, which PrEP and treatment as prevention, the accessibility of something as effective as pre-exposure prophylaxis, namely one pill of Travada every single day, uh, that's not as accessible to African-American men as to other members of the population. So it is another example of the unfortunate and disturbing disparities in health, in access to health, access to medications, access to health care, and the stigma and discrimination against men who have sex with men, particularly African-American men who have sex with men. Do you believe the Biden administration is aware of this dynamic and is prepared to do something to address it? Oh, absolutely. In fact, you know, in COVID-19, which could be equally as true for HIV, equity is a critical issue with regard to the, the Biden administration, that that's one of the things that he has made it very, very clear that when you're talking about disparities of health, equity is very important. And you're going to start seeing, or already seeing, as we get further and further into the administration, that that's going to be addressed. When you think about your time, you know, working with the AIDS crisis, obviously working during the pandemic, Years from now, what do you want people to say about you? What would you like your legacy to be? Well, that I gave it my best. I, I mean, I've worked with HIV for 40 years. 
um, it's been the dominating uh, motivation of my professional career. And I think we've had some significant successes from the research that we've done to the clinical trials, to the development of drugs. And importantly for me, to the fact that George W. Bush, President George W. Bush gave me the opportunity to put together the PEPFAR program, which as you know, is uh, really, I think one of the most important public health programs that we've ever established on an international basis. And for those who don't know, could you explain what the program is and what it does? Yeah, that's the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief. In 2002, President Bush sent me and a few others on a fact-finding mission to Southern Africa to determine if we could establish a program that would transform HIV care, prevention, and treatment in the developing world, particularly Southern Africa, because by that time, we already had life-saving drugs that were readily available to people in the developed world. And President Bush said to me and to others, but when he sent me to Africa to see if we could put a program together, he said we have a moral obligation as a rich country to see that other people in other parts of the world don't suffer and die from a disease merely because of where they were born or their location. So go to Africa and figure out a way, can we do something with therapy, with care, with prevention to have people in the developing world have a chance to live good lives and normal lives despite HIV. So we spent many, many months putting together what turned out to be the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief or PEPFAR, which the United States has invested billions and billions and billions of dollars in. It's, it's the most important positive legacy of George W. Bush. Uh, and now it's saved you know, anywhere from 15 to 18 million lives. My last question for you, speaking of George W. Bush, I know that his picture is among many pictures you have on this incredible wall in your office of all these photographs of influential people that you've met over the years. And I was just curious, which picture was your favorite? Which is my favorite picture of all the pictures I have on the wall? Yes, sir. <laughs> well, uh, I think it was a picture of me uh, sitting in the Oval Office with George H.W. Bush, President George W. Bush's father, who I got to know very, very well. When he asked me to become the director of NIH and I sat down and told him I didn't really want to do it because I wanted to stick with taking care of HIV, people with HIV, and I wanted to stick with my research and I wanted to continue to be the director of NIAID and I didn't want to have a position that might take me away from the immediate research and patient care that I was doing. So it was a great discussion I had with him. He was a great man. He understood me. He said, I still care a lot about you. Let's continue to work together. But that's one of the many pictures that I have in my office. Fantastic. Dr. Fauci, thank you so much for, first of all, just all the things you've done to help everyone, not just the LGBTQ community, but everyone, particularly during this pandemic. And then, of course, the special care that you gave to our community um, when very few people were willing to do anything at all. Thank you very much, Dr. Fauci. 
Thank you. It's a pleasure to have been with you. Thank you for having me. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. And if I am fortunate enough to be confirmed as the Assistant Secretary of Health, I will look forward to working with you. There were moments during Dr. Rachel Levine's confirmation hearing that were very difficult to watch, particularly the line of questioning coming from Senator Rand Paul, who did not ask Dr. Levine a single question about the pandemic, but instead used his time to focus on the genitalia of children. So let's be a little more specific since you evaded the question. Do you support the government intervening to override the parent's consent to give a child puberty blockers, cross-sex hormones, and or amputation surgery of breasts and genitalia? I would imagine for someone who began their career in pediatrics, for someone who was a pediatrics professor at Penn State University, for someone with children of her own, the very idea that Dr. Levine would seek to put a child in harm's way is nonsensical at best, prejudicial at worst. But then again, when you're trying to break a glass ceiling, there will always be people lined up to protect it for no other reason than to score political points. And in today's political environment, using a confirmation hearing to score points with a base is common practice. No matter how dehumanizing the line of questioning is, no matter how old and tired the attacks are. Case in point. Save Our Children was the first organized pushback against LGBTQ equality, and as you can tell from its name, the goal was to scare straight people into thinking gays and lesbians were going after their kids. That was 1977. Here we are in 2021, and it's the same scare tactic, only this time the target is transgender Americans. But in becoming the first openly transgender person to be confirmed by the Senate, Dr. Levine did more than just make history. She became an inspiration dare I say icon. We talk about that confirmation hearing, the focus of her work as Assistant Secretary for Health, and Dr. Levine has a very special message for those trans kids out there who are scared and feel alone. Dr. Rachel Levine, history maker, health official, butt kicker. So many wonderful titles, and you're certainly worthy of them all. Thank you so much for joining us on Life Out Loud. My pleasure. I'm very pleased to be here. Every episode, we start off with this conversation about seeing ourselves reflected in society. So my first question to you is, when was the first time you became aware of the LGBTQ community, more specifically, uh, transgender people? So... Um, you know, I'm a child of the 60s and, and the 70s. And so uh, th there was not as much visibility uh, for the LGBTQ community at that time. Probably uh, the first time that I really became uh, aware of the community was in college. Um, and so that was at, at Harvard um, from 1975 to 1979. And then especially um, when I, uh, after medical school, when I was in my training, which was in New York City at Mount Sinai starting in 1983. 
Um, I mean, and one of the things that I was very aware of in the early 80s in, in Manhattan uh, was the HIV epidemic and uh, patients that we would see uh, with HIV and AIDS uh, that would pass away. And so uh, that left a, a, a really a, a very significant impression upon me. Um, I just want to back up briefly to something you said. You, were, you said you were in college before you really became aware of the community. What was the experience in college like? Was it a play? Was it a person? Uh, it wasn't one specific person, but it was the first time that, that I, I met um, uh, LGBT um, youth and individuals and peers. And, um, you know, if, if I'm sure I did beforehand, but I, you know, in high school, but I wasn't really aware of it. And when you were meeting them, was it a, oh, this person's interesting, or was it a, oh, this person is something more than just interesting? I can identify with this person. You know, um, uh, there were there were no openly transgender individuals that I, that I met until I until I was in New York in the eighties and the nineties. Um, so uh, there were no openly transgender individuals in college and medical school, or even you know in the beginning of of, of my training. You know, I, I met people. Um, who were who were uh, gay, lesbian, bisexual individuals, uh, but in terms of, of of gender identity and sort of trans and gender non-binary individuals, you know, not probably till even later on in the eighties and nineties. Um, you graduated from Belmont High School, which is a suburb of Boston. Uh, I looked at the school's Wikipedia page in preparation and noticed that you were listed with the notable alumni tab. Was your high school as accepting and as tolerant as that list for Belmont High School's Wikipedia page? Well, uh, it's the Belmont Hill School. Belmont Hills. So it's okay. an all-male private school in the greater Boston area. Um, and, um, you know, at that time, again, uh, there was certainly no word for gender identity issues and transgender in, in individuals. So, um, you know, it was not really very openly discussed at that time at Belmont Hill. Now, I did have the opportunity, though, uh, a number of years ago to go back to Belmont Hill um, uh, when I was the uh, physician general of Pennsylvania um, as an openly transgender woman and to go back to this all-male prep school. It's still all-male. And to meet the, uh, the, the staff, meet the faculty and the administration, and to give a, a speech to the entire um, to school. You know? uh, so you know, we have hundreds of boys from 12 to 18 um, you know, in, in the auditorium, or it's actually, it's a chapel. It's called a chapel talk, and although it's non-sectarian. And, and to give a talk about my story but also being a member of the LGBTQ community and being a transgender woman who went to Belmont Hill. And that was a very rewarding experience. And, and I was very warmly received at Belmont Hill. Well, that's fantastic to hear. As you are aware of, and there's no easy transition for this, there are right now about 120 anti-trans bills across about 30 states um, in various stages whether they just recently introduced some awful uh, trans bills have actually been signed into law. Um, what does that tell you about where the nation is right now with this conversation? Sure. Um, well, those bills are extremely difficult and challenging, and they really target transgender youth. Trans youth are, are vulnerable, and they are at risk of, of bullying, 
uh, harassment and discrimination. And so we really um, need to work to support trans youth and to help them and to nurture them, not to try to limit their participation in activities or sports, or even in the most egregious bills, uh, try to limit their, uh, their ability to access uh, gender affirming medical care. So, you know, I, I find those bills really, really difficult. You know, I think that there are a number of challenges that we face. One is that um, as more transgender individuals are, are out and uh, in society, I, I think that, that there are people who don't understand. There are people who have no lived experience about um, trans individuals, about gender identity issues. And so, you know, I always say that people fear what they don't understand. And, uh, and what is beyond their experience. So I hope to, to, in my advocacy, to educate people about trans individuals and about my story and, and, and to make them you know, feel more comfortable and, 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 um, and trustful of LGBTQ individuals and transgender individuals. The other issue is politics. And I think that the origin of many of these bills is political. I think that there are some people using um, trans issues and trans youth as a wedge issue politically. And, you know, I, I think I strongly feel that, you know, a vulnerable community population like trans youth should not be politicized. We need to support and nurture them. So how do we do that? How do we go about supporting and nurturing trans people in general, but trans youth specifically, sure. when we have these bills that are coming down the pipeline? Well, I think it's going to take um, action. I think it's going to take advocacy and action um, at the federal level, and that's what I'm working to do. But it's going to take um, advocacy and action at the state level and in local communities to do that. So what I plan to do is to do it externally through advocacy, through media programs such as this, through social media, and in every form I possibly can to advocate for LGBTQ individuals, and in this case, trans youth. And we're going to do this uh, in, in regards to policy uh, at, the health, at the Department of Health and Human Services in the administration. I mean, we have a president in President Biden that is the strongest advocate and ally that I know to the LGBTQ community and the trans youth. Um, and you know there are a number of executive orders of supporting um, sexual and gender minorities uh, and uh, the LGBTQ community, uh, as well as statements that the president made, including in his address to Congress, specifically saying that he supports trans individuals and that it supports trans youth and that he has their back. And so what I like to say is that I have their back too, and I'm gonna work externally through advocacy and internally through policies at the Department of Health and Human Services uh, that, that support our community. You mentioned President Biden, and obviously his administration has made history in a lot of different ways. Um, of course, your confirmation being one of them. What do you remember about the confirmation process today? And what elements or aspects of that entire process surprised you? Um, well, you know, the process was interesting. Uh, it was um, challenging. It, I think it is for everyone uh, to go through their confirmation process. Um, I, I think that it was particularly challenging uh, because I'm an openly transgender transgender woman. Uh, what I remember most about the process is, is my gratitude to those at Health and Human Services in the administration that worked to prepare me. Do you recall any moments in which you thought to yourself, oh, my God, I'm trying to make history here? 
Um, no, I was really trying to be very mindful and in the moment. That's the best way to uh, uh, to deal with uh, with experiences like that. So uh, it, it didn't really hit me about uh, about the, uh, the you know the history making part of it. I was just in the moment, you know, answering the senator's questions and and uh, being you know open and truthful and um, and working through that process. Well, please tell me afterwards you celebrated like brunch somewhere or something, right? Well, you know, there's a COVID-19 pandemic. So um, <laughs> I, I went home and and uh, with my partner and my family, and we had a very nice dinner. Oh, girl, we got to celebrate with you. We got to, <laughs> that's not the way we make history in our community. We got to make sure there's some confetti and some glitter, right? Sounds good to me. <laughs> um, you, you mentioned earlier about the work that you did um, witnessing and obviously tending to people dealing with HIV AIDS during the early days of the crisis in New York. Um, the CDC recently released a study, um, a report dealing with HIV AIDS um, with a lot of encouraging news. Uh, one stat in particular though sort of raised my eyebrow and that was 23% of the people who are eligible for PrEP are currently prescribed PrEP. That means about 77% are not. What can be done to close that gap? It's a very important point. You know, in the 80s, when I was taking care of patients who all passed away, they all died. Um, if you had told me that we have a medicine that you could take once a day, that if you were at risk, um, would prevent HIV. If you had medicines that people with HIV could take every day, and that would keep them their viral load down and would keep them undetectable uh, and and you equals you and that you know they would be not able to transmit the disease then uh, untransmittable then I would have thought that those were a medical miracle and we have all of those things but we still have issues in terms of health equity we have to reach communities that we are not reaching with these, with, with these medications and with these protocols. And so that is why health equity is such a critical part of, of, of my priorities at, as the Assistant Secretary for Health. And I know it's one of the Secretary's priorities and the President's priorities. We're gonna be working across the administration and the department on health equity, and in particular in regards to HIV, to make sure that people have access to these uh, to, to these extremely powerful and, and, and important medications. You know, the work you're doing, and that's so fantastic to hear, um, the work you're doing, particularly when it comes to HIV AIDS, is so dear and close to our community. But obviously, you are interested in and, and got involved with medicine for a whole spectrum of reasons. Uh, you ever feel ghettoized a little bit and when you're working specifically for things just dealing with things that are important to the LGBTQ community when you have all these other interests that you know you would like to sort of explore? No, I really don't because in the office of the Assistant Secretary of Health, there are many, many divisions that are working on all of these issues. So, you know, we are working on health equity. Uh, we're working on, on the opioid crisis and mental health issues. Uh, we're working on, on, they're gonna have a new office specifically about climate change and hmm. health equity. Could you explain that? Sure. Climate change and health. Absolutely. How do so to connect? Well, you know, it, this, is a, this is an office that will concentrate on, on, on environmental justice. You know, those that are experiencing the health impacts 
um, uh, from climate change are predominantly vulnerable communities, African-American communities, Latinx communities, uh, Native American communities, um, uh, 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 American Indian, Native Alaskan communities. And so if you look at the impact of climate change um, on, on, uh, on, on certain cities, whether it's um, you know, Miami or New Orleans or New York, uh, if you look at the impact uh, of, of, of heat in the Southwest and lack of water in the Southwest, at the melting of the uh, of, of the Arctic, in, in terms of Alaska Native communities, it is it is it is hitting some communities far more than others. It is not a fair distribution, and so there is a strong health equity component to climate change, and 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 we're gonna we're gonna have a specific office. Um, that that is a part of an, a presidential executive order dealing with those health equity issues. So you can see there's a lot on my plate. A absolutely. Uh, you got your start in medicine through pediatrics, correct? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Pediatrics and then the subspecialty of adolescent medicine. What was it like for you, again, going back to the confirmation hearing, being asked questions about the well-being of children recognizing taking care of children is how you got into this field to begin with. Absolutely. So, you know, um, uh, I appreciated some questions and I uh, had less appreciation for other questions. Well, Senator, thank you for your interest in this question. Um, transgender medicine is a very complex and nuanced field um, with robust research and uh, standards of care that have been developed. You know, um, I bring everything that I've ever done to this experience, to, to this job as the Assistant Secretary for Health. I bring my training and my expertise in clinical experience in pediatrics and adolescent medicine. I bring my academic medicine experience, first at Mount Sinai College of Medicine and now at the, and then at the Penn State College of Medicine um, to to this experience. I bring all of the leadership training that I have had to this job. And then the public health experience that I had in Pennsylvania as the physician general and then secretary of health to this position. So everything I've ever learned and experienced, I bring to this job. And you know, I dedicate myself to helping people and helping people and, and, and uh, protecting the public health of really, of everyone, of everyone in America. What do you say to the parent um, whose child comes to them, comes out and says, I'm trans? And the parent doesn't know exactly how to manage it, and that, you know, she or he is hearing things from a political angle about how this is impacting children. How do you, what do you say to that parent? Sure. It's very challenging uh, for, for parents of, of trans kids. And, um, you know, I have clinical experience with this um, in my practice at the Penn State Hershey Medical Center as an adolescent medicine subspecialist. So I would see trans youth and young adults and I would talk to their parents and, and parents struggle. Um, what I would encourage parents to do is to talk to their doctor. Um, to talk to their pediatrician um, if it's a if it's a, a, a child or, or their family physician, um, and then um, to to try to look at uh, reputable websites. Um, uh, for example, the Fenway um, uh, Health System, which is in Boston in particular, uh, for for education, um, and then to seek out um, care, to seek out um, you know uh, therapy and medical care uh, that has expertise in this in this area. 
And that's why it is so challenging that some states are making that gender-affirming medical care illegal. I mean, my recommendation to every parent that I saw for all of their children, whether I was seeing their child for an eating disorder, whether I was seeing their child for other chronic medical problems, or their child was, was trans, or their child was gay, is to approach their child with unconditional love and acceptance. When you think about all the wonderful suggestions you just made, right? Get an education, um, seek out advice from your pediatrician or your family physician. There are a lot of people, particularly people of color, who don't have access to that type of health care that you're referring to. Is there any other alternative that they may be able to tap into? Well, it's hard. I mean, that's the whole issue of health equity, right? We need to make sure that, that vulnerable populations, whether it's in the inner city, whether it is suburban or rural, have access. Um, and so one, uh, one fantastic way of seeking access is through community health centers that are sponsored by HRSA at the Department of Health and Human Services. And they have fantastic care. Another thing that I think we're gonna work on is COVID-19 has shown us the importance of telehealth. The importance, of, and that's telehealth through video conferencing, but also audio only telehealth. Not everybody has access to broadband. Not everybody has fancy computers like this that, to, to be able to do that. And I think the telehealth services will be able to improve access for care as well. And so we're going to be working on that access to care to all communities at Health and Human Services under the leadership of Secretary Becerra. As we mentioned earlier, um, there are roughly about 120 anti-trans bills somewhere in the hopper. And with that has come a certain amount of media coverage regarding those bills and the response to those bills. Um, I have heard it said um, from members of the trans community that this emphasis on the physical aspect of it, the transitioning, the surgeries, et cetera, actually dehumanizes uh, trans people. I'm curious as to where you are in terms of how we as, as the media are supposed to cover this topic. And do you agree emphasis or too much coverage regarding transitioning uh, undermines every other aspect of a person's life? Well, I, I think it's very important for the media to be educated about this issue um, and uh, to, to seek out the res kind of resources that we were just discussing that parents might seek out and more. Uh, I think it's important for the media to talk to um, uh, mental health professionals and medical professionals that specialize in this field. Um, and again, through these technologies, that's easier than ever um, uh, to, to be able to get educated about it. And I think when covering it, I think it's important to emphasize all aspects of a transgender individual's life, not just the physical aspects. And so it's not, it's not that the physical transition is unimportant, but it, it is by far not the only thing. Um, and, you know, there, there is the social transition, there's mental health issues, there's many different aspects to being part of our community. And of course, you know, the brave new world in terms of gender um, is, is gender non-binary, gender non-conforming individuals um, and, and youth and, and, and others. And so, you know, I, I think that there is much more than just the binary of male or female. And I think young people are leading the way in educating us about that. So when you hear people from the community say, hey, you know, let's not just keep talking about transitioning, your thoughts are? Um, let's not only talk about transitioning. 
It isn't that it's unimportant, but you know, I think that the public tends to focus on that. And I think that there are many, many, many aspects of transgender individual lives. And, and, and there are many, many aspects of things that we need to work on. You know, uh, there's a concept called the social determinants of health. What are the other aspects of people's social condition besides just their health care that influence health in general? So that would include, for example, education. That would include housing. That would include transportation. That would include the environment. That would include the nutri nutrition, and so many other aspects that influence people's health. People's health, and I think it is important to to concentrate on all of those different aspects in regards to transgender individuals and challenges that trans individuals have in accessing those issues and in, in having education and, and you know problems they might have in school in accessing transportation in accessing housing accessing job and job security all those other aspects are critically important and so i agree that we can't just focus on the physical transition that's missing every other aspect of a trans person's life and every all the other challenges that trans people have what do you do for fun um, well, I, you know, I work a lot. Uh, so, I know you do. That's what I wonder if you're having any fun. <laughs> uh, well, I, I, you know, I interact with my family and my partner and, and that is, you know, the most gratifying thing. I, I'm, I'm very protective of my personal life. Um, I do, um, I do exercise. So I really enjoy going for walks and it's so nice now that the weather is nice and in Pennsylvania and Washington that we can go out for great walks. Um, and, and, and I have, um, and I have a, a dog. I have a, a soft-coated Wheaton Terrier, Bailey, and he's a little old man. He's almost 15 years old, and so uh, <laughs> we walk slowly together. Because you said that you are very protective of your personal life. I am. Um, but you're also a, a historical figure and an icon. How difficult is it for you to, to, to balance those two truths about yourself? Um, I, I have been able to balance it fine. So um, when people say that I'm an icon, you're going to see me blush because, I mean, I, I, I find that concept um, remarkable. But, um, but uh, you know, there, there's my, my professional life. There's, you know, my life in terms of, a I would say, a strong advocate for the LGBTQ community. Uh, and then there's my personal life. And my personal life is my personal life. Is that why I can't find you on Instagram or anything like that? Uh, I am not on social media at all. Um, and, uh, you know, I um, had a lot of challenges last year on social media um, as we were advocating for the health of Pennsylvania in the for, uh, during COVID-19. Uh, there were many people who disagreed. There were many people who were very um, LGBT uh, and specifically transphobic. And I found it easier and better just to come off social media. You know, I don't know if you know this about me or not, but my first attempts to break into sports as an openly gay man wasn't great. <laughs> More, um, things are much better now, but there were certainly periods when I was growing into this profession where I questioned why did I come out and, you know, would I ever break through? Um, if I could go back and talk to my younger self, I would tell myself, it's going to be okay, stay the course, it's going to be all right. What would you tell your younger self if you had an opportunity, given everything that you've experienced and understanding everything that you represent today? 
So there are two aspects of that. First, I'm going to talk about uh, from a career point of view, is that I've always been gratified by my career in medicine because really all I try to do is help people. Really, you know, I would see patients and try to help them and their families. I would teach students about how to help people or, or uh, do clinical research or develop programs. And so, uh, you know, I would say that you're going to still be able to do that. It, it, it's from a public health perspective with a broader brush, first at the state level and now at the federal level. But um, stay the course in your career because you're still going to be helping people. From a personal point of view, I think a lot of it would be, as you, as you, as you said, the things are going to turn out okay. The things things will be okay, um, and and to live your life without fear. You know, I, I think that that fear holds us back. Uh, fear of the unknown, fear of negativity, fear of negative reactions, and, and to and I think to to tell myself to continue to live my life without fear, uh, and that things will be okay. So to live your life out loud. To live your life out loud. Final question for you. 10 years from now, what does living life out loud for the LGBTQ community look like to you? Well, you know, I am a positive and optimistic person. And I think despite the challenges that we're having, the things are getting better and they will continue to get better. I think that this is part of the, of the, of the journey. And that is, you know, I think, you know, as, as we make progress, you, you see pushback. I, I, that happens. And so we need to be strong. We need to be resilient as a community. We need to continue our advocacy and our work at the local level, at the state level, at the federal level, and the international level. You know, we're all one world. We're all interconnected. COVID-19 has certainly shown us, shown us that. And I think that things will be better in 10 years. I think that we will see um, more, um, more, not just tolerance, and not just acceptance, but hopefully a more welcoming environment for diversity in all of its wonderful ways, including for LGBTQ people, that, um, that we'll have um, um, more equality and fairness, and hopefully, you know, uh, even you know, things are even better throughout our society. That's what I see. Well, I see an icon who is doing amazing work to help make that a reality. Dr. Levine, thank you so much for your time, your wisdom, your courage, and your grace. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. It was really a pleasure to talk with you. Thanks. Very special thanks to Dr. Anthony Fauci and Dr. Rachel Levine for stopping by and spending time with us. On the next episode of Life Out Loud, comedian, actress, writer, and overall badass Sherry Kohler from the hit TV show Good Trouble stops by. We talk about dating, Margaret Cho, anti-Asian violence, and that moment, it all made sense for her. This girl just completely opened up my eyes to this new world. This was a, a, a new uh, confession to myself, you know, something I maybe have been avoiding for years. Who knows? I really enjoyed my conversation with Sherry. I hope you do as well. And hey, if you like the show so far, please give us a rating, leave a review. That really helps us get the word out. Tell your friends, tell your family, tell your co-workers, tell your side piece, your main piece, tell everybody. These conversations are fun, they're important, and that's why we want to engage as many people as possible. So please, spread the word. Life Out Loud with LZ Granderson is a production of ABC Audio, produced by Trevor Hastings. Thanks to senior producers Tony Morrison and Robert Cepeda. What's up, boys? Associate producers are David Toledo and Madeline Wood. The executive producers of Life Out Loud are Eric Johnson and Liz Alessi. 
Special thanks to Mark Anthony Harris Gardner, John Haworth, Kiri McGurl, Elena Genovese Picard, Joel Lyons, Jonathan Fagg, Joyita Bizras, and the Pride ABC and OWN Television Stations Employee Resource Group. And a big shout out to Josh Cohan, Elizabeth Russo, Ariel Chester, Ali Yang, Hal Arenal Thiel, Brian Choi, and Stacia Dushisku. I'm LZ Granison. Girl, wasn't that good? <laughs>